Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, welcome back. Yes. Remember when a couple weeks ago or last week I said we should try to do a several a week until we get to number 100 for the one two year, gosh, two year anniversary of this podcast? No, I don't remember. Yeah, you said there's no way we'll do it. You weren't wrong. <laughs> yeah, been a little busy. Maintaining one a week is pretty good with some free freebies. Yep. Anyway, so this is number 91. Yeah, and it's kind of your deal here, this comorbidity it's thing. my deal. I get to run this one next week. Y'all get to listen to Kurt talk more. But this is a fun talk. It's, I don't know, a million times I've talked about this and given this now. But it really is the whole what comes first, the chicken or the egg, mental health diagnoses or substance use disorders. Does mental health cause substance use disorders? Does substance use disorders create mental health diagnoses? Um, mm. It's... You know, it's a hard conversation. And when you're talking to families, I think is the biggest place where it's difficult. You lost me already. Whatever. You know, like if you're talking to a family and they're like, well, they did this just because they're trying to escape or whatever. Yeah. There is some to that. But I think sometimes explaining that that's not necessarily the case can be difficult. I think this whole kind of causality versus directionality thing is, it's interesting. It's It's interesting. So it's funny because it goes back to this whole subclinical. So things you don't even recognize in a person that could be, you know, behavioral things or emotional problems or a, um, what's that word? A kindling of a substance use disorder under the surface until all of a sudden. Kindling? Okay. Isn't that a word? Yeah, it's a word, but it's like firewood. Isn't that like the fire starting? Yes. Like slowly burning behind the scenes? That makes sense. The city girl finally came up with a country word. Go ahead. So anyway. Yeehaw. <laughs> so even if you have this like subclinical, behavioral, emotional, mental health thing that's not super obvious or not diagnosed, it can still lead or prompt drug use. And... A lot of times it's hard to know because a patient might not remember when they first used or if they had any kind of mental health things prior. And a lot of times it's those transitions where they went from one less concerning issue to a kind of a bigger issue where suddenly they're using heroin. Um, Yeah. I mean, a lot of times patients can't remember that. Well, I had a patient recently that we had this conversation and it was like, uh, at some point I was diagnosed with how do you say borderline depression? Like, okay, but doesn't remember like how much he was drinking at the time or using at the time. Yep. And so it's hard, but yeah. anyway, so there's three common pathways that kind of explain this comorbidity because we all know this co-occurrence of mental health substance use disorders, but why? Why is there this comorbidity besides what everybody just assumes? So Numbers two and three are the kind of easy assumptions we kind of touched on. We'll get back to those. But this first one is the common risk factors. So the common denominators between both mental health issues and substance use disorders. Yeah. The annoying thing is, is there's like six of them and they all overlap. Yeah, there's a whole pile of them. And uh, and these are things we talk about a lot. A lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I do with patients. 
uh, because a lot of times they they're like, well, why is this happening to me? And so we have these conversations, and you know, I probably I probably hit number one more often than anything. It's just that whole genetic thing. Correct. So as you've heard us all say a million times, fifty to about fifty percent of substance use disorder is contributed to genetics, but so is mental health. So this is that common denominator. Mm-hmm. About half of mental health diagnoses can be attributable. Were you going to cough or something? No. Okay. I was just uh, <laughs> trying to give me COVID. Try, yeah, COVID. So both of them have, you know, different genes that, you know, predispose them to substance use disorders or mental health. And all the other things in the universe, which will come up in others, you know, the other five of these. I think it's interesting Common too, denominators. You know, a lot of times when you talk to patients, you say, well, you know, this genetic thing. Anybody in your family that's, you know, had issues? And they'll be like, yeah, everyone. And my recent patient just said, well, the only one who's not like actually flipped it and told me the only one who wasn't because there was too many that were. Yeah. So, but you know, not only is it just genetics that predispose you, but it's, it's how the genetics and how your genes respond to the drug. And I like to use that example of, you know, that one patient you had that said the first oxy he took, it was like, love it first sight. Yeah. I didn't want to go back to feeling like he did before. Yeah. I mean, love it first sight. No, come on. That's like a you know, a lifetime movie. And yeah. that's how he described his first pill. Whereas like a lot of people say they take a pill and they're like, they feel like crud and they're gross and they're nauseous and they hate how they feel. Yeah. And that's really, I think the big thing is that, you know, a significant number of people take them and it is just nothing to them. Right. But boy, we've all seen it. If you've been in this, uh, in this uh, part of the business for a while, you, <laughs> you've run into these patients. So it's, it's crazy. Um, but then, also, your genetics kind of pre-tell you how you're going to respond to stress, risk-taking behavior, novelty-seeking behaviors. And where I think this is interesting and how you can kind of see that play out a little bit more, this aspect of the genetics, is, you know, obviously I have four kids and you have three kids and a lot of grandkids. I say a lot. Yet I <laughs> well, four is four. a lot. <laughs> yeah, four is a ton. But I mean, think about each one of them individually, and they each do respond to stress differently, even though they have the same genetics, but it's just how those genes were, you know, chosen to go into that, you know. Well, in the end, you know, it's all about dopamine and serotonin, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, where it's at, I mean, that's going to kind of play into how you are. Right? Both, yeah, and, you know, the drugs you know, mess with them and the mental health diagnosis, they're already dysregulated. Yeah. I just love these faces on these little pictures. But, okay, so then the genetic influences, epigenetic influences. Epigenetics is like that super fascinating thing that's still super hard to explain. But this is where you take your basic genetics and modify it with these weird protein things based on experiences based on you know historical things in your family and years and gen what's the man i'm struggling yes you are um you know gene generations and generations and generations of impact so you just let me know when you want me to take over yeah no so different things in the environment and different things in in heritability and you know in the historical things can impact which genes are more prevalent so if if your family, good one. Seriously, your phone's on? That is so not mine because I do not have such a lame text thing. So if you have a family history of a lot of use disorders and maybe those genes end up being 
more prevalent because of, you know, environmental influences, or that's the coping mechanism that generations and generations in your family have used, you're even more likely than somebody who might have the genetic susceptibility, but hasn't been under such high stress for all that time Mm because they, their epigenetics don't bring about that susceptibility as high. Oh, are you switching to epigenetics? Number two? I already did. Oh yeah. Wow. I kind of fell apart there. You, you know, wow. You know, we, uh, of course, have had that speaker on epigenetics quite a bit. Oh, Susan Bullion. Yeah. And, She's I, like and her whole story about how epigenetics are affected future generations. I think, I always think about epigenetics after she told the story of the mice. The mice and the rose. Yeah, but the way, and there's a very similar thing that I've read many times where horses can be on a trail out in the backcountry and suddenly they'll go crazy and it's because they smell a bear. When in fact, they've never seen a bear before or been around a bear, but they know from that epigenetics gives them that, that whole know what a bear smells like. Okay. But I like the mouse one better. Yeah. So, so first generation of mice are in, you know, a mice cage and every time they puff in this rose smell, they shock them. And so the mice like scurry because they don't want to be shocked. And the way they you just, said shock, shock them. They fear. Yeah. So then like two generations later, they actually puff this rose smell into the cage and the mice freak out, out even yeah. though they've never, ever been shocked themselves. Yeah, they freak out just from the smell. Yes. So that's epigenetics. Epigenetics. So can it be changed? It can. Um, this is where, you know, supportive systems, this is where therapies will come in. It can, interventions, environment alterations can change this over time. But this is, this is more challenging. Mm. Um, I love this how another epigenetic influence can play in. So a pregnant mom who eats a diet super high in fat actually can influence the fetuses as it's a baby's reward pathway. So they they have heightened reward senses for fatty, sugary, bad-for-you foods. So, so they tend French to... French fries, deep-fried French fries. They tend to go for that. Mm. And poor maternal care can impact so it's higher stress situations and a mom who's maybe you know housing insecure food insecure all of the above um, those babies tend to not do as well with stress because they've been living in a high cortisol environment huh. for you know the pregnancy you say that stuff like you're an expert that's that was yeah. impressive thank you see i'm coming around okay so the third common risk factor brain region involvement this is this is you know my super frontal lobe favorite thing so the adulting the front part of your brain this is where you make those decisions. This is the impulse control. This is the reward center. A lot of neurotransmitters involved in this brain region. Dopamine, serotonin, of course, glutamate, GABA, norepi. But different ways that this frontal lobe develops can play into how you, you know, either have more impulse control issues and mental health diagnoses, how you can respond to drugs more with just that heightened dopamine response. So brain region involvement, common denominator between substance use disorders and mental health diagnoses. Hmm. And environment, again, seems to go hand in hand with epigenetics. A lot of stress, a lot of trauma, adverse childhood experiences. Definitely impacts that. And then I love how stress gets its own dang bullet point because it's already been mentioned 25 times. (laughs) But stress is a big thing on that brain of yours, that small brain of yours. It's efficient. A small but efficient brain of yours? Efficient. So yeah, stress. I mean, duh, people who are stressed out have higher anxiety. My God, have you met Kurt? (laughs) Uh, 
<laughs> that was actually that actually made that, me laugh. I didn't even think about it. That was good. That was good. But then also, in a person who's maybe in early recovery and recovery from a substance use disorder, high stress can bring about you know a relapse or a lapse. Cravings. Cravings. Mm-hmm. So I think there's one more. Yes, stress. More a lot of stress, and the stress. I'm just going to go kind of back to that. It comes to back to the dopamine. So the whole hypothalamic um, access and how the drugs are reinforced, how they're not reinforced, how you handle stress, you know, all the things. Mm. So mindfulness-based treatment is where it's at. Well, I'm the most mindfulness guy you've met. Well, and it's interesting because I think predating mindfulness and some of that for substance use disorders we talked about it a lot for like anxiety and depression you know the mindfulness and journaling and all those things and yoga and now they've started to incorporate those more into substance use disorder treatments as well yep very common very common so are you going to move into trauma and adverse childhood experiences yes the last common risk factor is trauma this is like one of your favorite things you know i i love trauma i love a scores we should do another talk on ACE scores. I think we already did. I, I said another. Mm. So you use substances to reduce anxiety. Yeah, and it's that whole PTSD thing that people talk about. What is PTSD? It's the hyper reaction of stress, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. So interestingly, service members, there was a study done between, they, they evaluated all these service members. I don't know how many it was, sorry. Between 2004 and 2010, 16% of them had untreated substance use disorders. 8% needed treatment for serious psychological distress. And one out of five veterans with PTSD also have a substance use disorder. And that feels low to me, but this was over a decade ago. Yeah, and you think about PTSD in the service group. It's like, you know, World War II. I think that was one of the most unrecognized things uh, that, that happened. I mean... A lot of these people came back and really back then saw some pretty tough things. And uh, it really, there was no, I don't think any system to address it. Right. So now I think we're doing better. Although they don't necessarily get all the great treatments yet. But anyway, that's a whole other can of worms I'm not opening. Okay. So the third, or the, excuse me, the second, remember I said at the beginning, there's three comorbid comorbidity pathways. The first one was all these common risk factors. Number two is mental health contributing to substance use and substance use disorders. So the hypothesis is kind of makes sense, I think, to to most people. I think this is where most of society sits, you know, just stop using, fix your stress. Yeah, why don't they just quit? Right. So individuals with severe, mild, or subclinical mental health may use drugs as self-medication, and potentially initially, temporarily, this these substances can reduce their symptoms, but then over time, it's exasperated, exacerbated. <laughs> English major. I'm exacerbated or exasperated right no. now. No, so. <laughs> I'm not even sure what to say. I don't even know what to say. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, you know clearly, even we see this in the in the buprenorphine crowd. Many of them will take extra because they feel like they're withdrawing, but in fact, they're just anxious. anxious. They mm-hmm. have anxiety. They have other symptoms. And so people will move to things that they feel improve those symptoms. Right. And then over time, they, like I said, they exacerbate <laughs> their mental health. <laughs> nice. You and finally get, got that one. They get more shame, stress, blame, humiliation because they're using. So it ends up being that amazing cycle. Um, 
So yeah, you have this mental health diagnosis. And the other thing with the mental health diagnosis when you're using substances is you maybe aren't as aware of the negative effects of the substance because of your mental health diagnosis. Uh. And the substances can sometimes alleviate the side effects of the mental health medications. Mm. So there's a lot of things that play in. There's that. Yes. Then. Well, you know, one of the other interesting thing that things that happen, especially when people are, you know, on opioids, uh, maybe they're on heroin or fentanyl, and then maybe their depression is worse, and they feel like their mental health medications aren't working. But Correct. in fact, it's it's actually other things they're they're using. Well, so, yeah, I mean, think about what we talked about before. A lot of the mental health medications for depression, anxiety, SSRIs. Yeah. Okay. So we're modulating the serotonin to help with the depression, yet we're using substances which are also messing with the serotonin and dopamine. So this is why another soapbox thing is you can't diagnose and or treat mental health diagnoses within a month of using substances. Clearly. I need like a mic drop button. Yeah, I don't think we have that. How about this one? Nope. That nope. one's good. No, that was good. Okay, final pathway. Having a substance use disorder can contribute to mental health development. You talk about the schizophrenia. Uh, Does that mean a mental health uh, diagnosis development? Yes. Uh, Yeah, and and clearly, you know, a lot of the substances lead to changes that disrupt things mentally. You know, I think one of my favorite cases was actually the guy who'd been smoking marijuana for a decade or two. And then he comes in here or and voices. Four, wasn't he smoking in like no, the 50s it was like, or 60s? It was almost 20 years. No, this is a different one. Oh. <laughs> and uh, he came in, and he was actually with a kid. And he's just like, as well as, by the way, you know, by the way, I've been hearing voices. Your hand's on the door. Dang. And I'm like, oh, really? I'm and, hungry. It's lunchtime. And I kind of knew the family pretty well. And I'm like, well, you know, he smoked marijuana. And yeah, you know, since I was about 15. And he... He clearly was crossing that line where he was starting to have a mental health issue, uh, you know, schizophrenia. He's having he's having auditory hallucinations, and when he quit smoking, it went away. Um, so that's I mean that's that's a lucky human. Yeah, and he you know. actually tested it again a few months later. Started up, came back. So, so the question is, is he going to develop it without long term? Yeah. So this is one of my favorite topics, and which is why we didn't go into the whole depth of the schizophrenia thing. Earlier in this podcast, we're going to end up doing another one because it's just so fascinating to me that, you know, people who are predisposed, and this is that predisposition to certain mental health diagnoses, that 50%. So people who have a lot of family history of schizophrenia or extreme bipolar, you know, their their relatives or their family history people, like, so the next generation is much higher of having schizophrenia. And if they have those genes doesn't necessarily mean they're going to develop it. But if you throw something like marijuana, especially on top of that, or something that changes all those chemicals. Well, methamphetamine. It, yeah, it can bring about that underlying that would have never presented had it not been for. Yeah. And it, again, the whole, men- the whole mental health thing with methamphetamine, and we get patients who appear to be potentially manic or psychotic, psychotic and, and, it's amazing. Uh, and we, when we were in corrections, I mean, we'd see these patients over a period of a week or two clear. And so, yeah, I mean, substance use disorder can really sometimes bring that out. And we always have to think about that. I like this as a teaching point with adolescents and youth because... I thought you were going to say you. 
Adolescence and you. And you. No, No, and the youth, youth. because like they might have seen mental health stuff in their families and they're afraid of having that become them. You know, Mm. I think schizophrenia is one thing that can be, I mean, it's so devastating. And I mean, you've taken care of patients. I've taken care of patients and it's so sad. And if they've seen that and they've grown up with that, that can definitely be maybe a thing if you can explain to them that, you know, these behaviors are making your chances more likely. Well, you know, you talked a little bit about patients taking some of these substances to make their symptoms better. And I had a patient with schizophrenic and the voices were much better on heroin than they were off. And they were okay on buprenorphine. Hmm. They were tolerable, but um, it was really a tough, uh, some tough sledding. Sad. All right. Well, that was a fun, exciting, riveting Stimulating conversation. I'm beside myself. (laughs) All right, everybody. So thank you so much for listening. Um, Really, the bottom line is it's all intermixed. Dopamine, serotonin is always going to be your answer. Um, And it's just not good to blame one thing. You have to look at everything in a patient and treat every patient holistically. Yeah, next week, we're going to be talking a little bit about buprenorphine and some of the new FDA warnings. Because of the weird teeth things. Oh, don't give it away. Well, no, that's going to bring people in, man. That's huge. Anyway, so if anybody has any topics you'd like us to discuss or certain board things you want to discuss, please email us at theaddictionconnectionpodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, we will let Casey take over. I saw her today at the reception. A glass of wine in her hand. I knew she was gonna meet her connection At her feet was a footloose man You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes You might find You get what you need You get what you need To the demonstration To get my fair share of abuse Singing, we're gonna vent our frustration If we don't, we're gonna blow a 50 amp fuse You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want If you try sometimes, you might find You get what you need You get what you need I went down to the Chelsea drugstore To get your prescription filled I was standing in line with Mr. Jimmy And man, did he look pretty ill We decided that we would have a soda My favorite flavor, cherry red I sung my song to Mr. Jimmy And he said one word to me And that was dead You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes You just might find You get what you need You get what you need
Schneider. I saw her today at the reception. In her class was a bleeding man. She was practiced in the art of deception. I could tell by her bloodstained hands. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. Yeah. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. You get what you need. You can't always get what you want. Always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. If you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. You get what you need.